0: I'm Linda von Tolberg, and with me is Professor Theo Fenter. He's from the University of Johannesburg. And we're going to talk about Israel and also about the elections and what he expects will happen. Well, if we can predict that. Hi, Theo. Um, Welcome to Business.
1: Hi, Linda. Good to see you again.
0: Great, great that you could join us. Well, can we start with the situation in Israel? What do you make of that?
1: Yeah, I think the situation in Israel is probably the number one crisis globally at the moment. Um, I mean, um, suddenly we don't even think about the Ukraine anymore, neither Putin. But um, we have seen this before. We've seen this in 1967. We've seen this in 1973. As a a matter of fact, this whole Hamas attack on Israel is 50 years after the Yom Kippur War, and it is important to to remember that although it was the end of the 1973 conflict, Israel got the overhand and um, and and they, in 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 my terms, won the war. In the first few days of that war, Syria and Egypt were actually taking back land that was occupied in 1967 so in the Arab nations the Yom Kippur uh, conflict is actually seen as a victory so this is a a, a, a situation which 50 years afterwards um, was done in a very specific sense and my take on what Hamas did was for the first time we have seen an attack on Israel on three dimensions um, land sea and air through the missiles and and these kind of things, which means that they had to put a lot of planning in. They had to really work through this. And and looking at it, it is a systems failure on the side of Israel. In other words, an intelligence failure for them not to see it coming. Usually, um, the Israeli intelligence services, several of them, are fairly well-connected into other intelligence services, and this and that and the other, but this one, it seems to me, um, wasn't clear. In my readings over the weekend, I found three articles, one in New York Times, one in Washington Post, and the third one, where people over the last 18 months wrote about ten to 15,000 missiles uh, in, in the Gaza region and that Hamas is building up a huge stockpile with the help of Iran, uh, India, to get that. And in each of these articles, there was a warning that one should uh, be careful about what they're planning. But I think what happened was two things happened in Israel. One is the uh confidence they had in the Iron Shield. In other words, that whatever comes... We can stop that. Well, if 5,000 of these missiles are coming, I don't think anything will stop all of them. Secondly, I think one shouldn't forget that the internal politics in Israel at the moment are very, very polarized. Netanyahu is in power for the last 12 years, of which 10 years, uh, continuously. There are stories about his personality, stories about corruption, And then over the last two years, they've started with a process to actually undermine the legal authority of the Supreme Court and the court system in Israel in that you can change that by a political vote. And that caused uh, weekend after weekend of uprising and uh, boycotts in, in, in Israel. And I think these things prevented them from seeing the problem emerging in Hamas. The question now is, what is it that Hamas is doing? And we must remember, Hamas is a political organization. Some people would call it a terrorist organization. Some would call it a freedom organization. Whatever you, whichever side you are, they are not in control of Gaza. That is the Palestinian Authority under the leadership of um, Hezbollah. And so the, Hamas action must be diver, must be divorced from from the Palestinian Authority, although when you look at the problem, people tend not to do that, but I think it would be useful to just think about that for a moment, and what they want Hamas is they want Israel to retaliate in mass and I think Israel will probably do that because that's the way in which they retaliate is um, is with a 10 or a 20 pound hammer, rather than a very, very well taken shot, they will come with a big hammer. If they come with a big hammer, into a highly, highly, densely populated area like Gaza, you will see a humanitarian crisis like you've never seen before. And that means that the Israelis would not be able to sustain such a war. To go into Gaza is a military decision. To get out of it is a problem. So, I think currently in Israel, there must be a lot of strategic thinking going into this, but I must expect the Israelis to react and to respond predictively, and out of that, it's going to harm Israel in a very real sense. I think all the plans for some form of peace or settlement, whether it's a two-state, whether it's an integrated state, doesn't matter which model you're looking at. Uh, whether Saudi Arabia is approaching Israel, whether Israel is is continuing on a on a kind of a, a relaxation of relations the countries around them, I think all of these things are currently put on hold um, to see where this conflict is going, and this conflict is going to impact on all of us like the Ukraine conflict did, um, the oil, the, the gas situation, the energy situation, the food situation. With Israel, definitely we can see um, monetary units like uh, the dollar, the pound, the rand, becoming more volatile. Um, typically gold uh, increase in value as well as oil. And Europe currently, and the strain of Of energy supply due to the Ukrainian conflict will feel this as hard as South Africa.
0: Yes, and it seems to be a political play ball for everybody now. I mean, even I see President, um, former President Trump has said that um, the money to Hamas and various organizations in that area has been supplied by Americans. Um, In South Africa, the South African government. Has, respond, oh, the, um, has responded a bit more cautiously, but the ANC said they are on the side of Hamas. So what does this mean for South Africa, apart from the, the Rand and economically we might be in insurance?
1: Uh, it's a complicated situation in South Africa. You're right. The ANC has been on record for a very long time to be very, very um, proactively in support of the Palestinian problem in all their manifestos, the party documentation, and that's the situation. But South Africa also has a strong uh, Jewish lobby um, operating in in the business sector and so on. And South Africa has had no relations with Israel. Despite all of these things, um, Israel is a major player in things like biotechnology, when you look at agriculture in South Africa, all those kind of things. So there's a there's a huge tightly knit network, and that is why the government's um, response was more towards um, a similar response to, to that of the Ukraine. Uh, a call on both parties to 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 cease the fighting and to sit around the table and talk. And in in the Middle East, getting to a table to talk seems to be the last. Part of any conflict. Um, in other parts of the world, you can get guys to sit around the table. But it seems to me, whether it's Turkey, whether it's Syria, whether it's Egypt, uh, the first step is to is to go into conflict, and then later on, when you see that the conflict is not sustainable, or you have these enormous pressures from the outside, then you will start talking. And and I mean, there has been so many efforts. The last one, I think you mentioned briefly, was when Donald Trump and his son-in-law tried to settle or to, to create a kind of a peace deal, peace accord in, in, um, in the Middle East. And uh, I knew that one was stillborn because they did it without talking to um, Hamas, for instance, or Hezbollah. They were talking to Saudi Arabia and, and the um, Israelis. That's the easy part. The difficult part is to talk to the guys that really understand the frustration of being boxed up in Gaza. And from a South African standpoint, we we came from an era of apartheid. Now apartheid was a a system of legislative um, division uh, of of. of social engineering to keep people apart as part of a political solution, which was, of course, never sustainable. So we understand when the Palestinians are saying that Gaza is nothing but a bunch of stuff, is nothing but a little outpost bordered by the sea uh, to the south, the desert, uh, to the east, Israel, and to the north, Israel. And that Israel went on in land that was basically up for negotiation. The Israelis under Netanyahu, that's why we call him conservative, started to establish kibbutzes and farms and, and settlements and things like that on land which was still being negotiated. And I think that created a lot of um frustration. And then the last point to show the the intricateness of these networks. Between Nineteen and 20,000 Palestinians travel on a daily basis between Palestine and Israel to work there. And then they return on a daily basis. So, their income, their tax, their work, whatever, is generated by Israel. That has now come to a stop. So, it is a huge crisis really at different levels. And that's why I think this is number one problem currently in the world.
0: Yeah, Ukraine might not like that, that the attention off um, focuses away from them. So th- that might also be interesting if you look at geopolitics. Um, can we get to the election in South Africa, which seems five six months away? Um, what what do you read from these well hundreds of political parties that can uh, participate in the elections? There's kind of a new one that pops up every now and then. You know, what, how, what should we read into these small parties, apart from that it looks like South Africa is very polarized? Could they get together? Uh, how do you see this?
1: Well, let me just contextualize. When you sit in, in the UK, where you have a, a party system that we call a first-past-the-post, in other words, you have elections in wards, and out of every ward, one candidate can emerge as a member of parliament. When you, we we had a system like that until 1994. So we understand that intuitively and very well. But then in 1994, we moved to a system of proportional representation, more like what you will see in Italy and the Netherlands and so on. Now, what proportional representation does, it reflects the different political views, I think, in a much fairer way than the first past the post system, which can be very skewed at best, but it also creates a multitude of parties. Currently, uh, at the uh, Independent Electoral Commission, 343 parties are registered to participate in the national election. Not all will. Typically, about 40 parties participate because they've got enough money and they can sustain a, a campaign and typically about between 10 and 12 parties make uh, the final um, deal. In other words, to get a percentage. Now, in terms of current electoral statistics, you need between forty-five and 50,000 votes in the national election to have one representative in Parliament. We've got 400 MPs, um, 200 would be elected, directly proportionally and two hundred would be directly be elected proportionally from the province. But in in any case you need about that. So a lot of what I call the one percent part are parties that are in Parliament because they got a a a portion of a calculation. Um, let's say 0.5% or 027 I think 0.27% constitute one seat in Parliament. That means we've got three or four big ones, the ANC, the DA, the EFF, and I would add the entire Freedom Party among them. Let's call them the big four, of which two are smaller and two are bigger. And then you have the rest. Now, if you look at the current polling, and there are several um, survey research um, guys in the in the field at the moment, and, and bringing uh, interesting results to the fore. And I tried to to compile um, a little bit of it. It seems to me that if you take the big political part, they will make up approximately ninety percent of who goes to parliament, and the other about 40 parties that participate in the election, they will have to share among themselves 8% of the total vote. So we will get a few 1%, guys. But the big issue that we are looking at for 2024 is the ANC for the first time, and it's polling regularly, every month, different polls, uh, different uh, sets of statistics, uh and and, and different um, population groups, it pulls under 50%. Some guys have it as low as 39%. I've seen surveys showing 37%, but um, I think it's more towards the middle 40s. Let's say 45% in that vicinity. And, And that must concern the ANC very much because it means for them, to stay in government, they will have to form an alliance with somebody, or a coalition, what we call it. The next one that is interesting is the DA. The DA um, holds around 20%. They That's where they've been the last two or three elections. Whether it's 19% or 22%, it's in that range. And they have formed a pre-election coalition. They call it a multi-party charter with several other parties to see if they cannot jointly gain more support than the ANC. And we can discuss that a little bit later. They're they onto something, but I'm not sure they have the numbers. The third one, which is the most interesting, is the EFF. The EFF would be regarded as the most radical party currently in Parliament. They, the guys in the red, responsible for disturbances in Parliament, and doing everything unconventional that you can think of. Their problem is that they poll between 10, and in some polls I've even seen 15 to 16% of the support. Now that is significant in size, but it is still big to be considered as a coalition partner with, for instance, the ANC. So I don't see the EFF playing a role at the National Political level at all following 2024. However, there may be a coalition partner at the provincial level, which is far less important. But over time, it provides you with a power base. And then uh, one of the interesting ones would be the IFP, the, the Incarta Freedom Party. Now, I did many, many moons ago did my master's thesis on Incarta and Buttigieg. And my view then was that if Buttigieg dies, Incarta will die with him. The IFP will die with him because he is so much the image, he is so much the leadership. But I must admit today, like a young academic, I was wrong. Um, there is life in the IFP beyond Buttigieg. As a matter of fact, it may interest uh, the 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 british um uh, listeners that lady Diana was far more important in in her death to changes in the the royal family than when she was still alive and I think with butleszy it's a very very similar comparison um, he will be used by the i f p in next year's election and they will rally around his editing. They will evaluate happen what he brought. And the IFP is polling around about 7%. It's incredible. At the, at one point, I thought the IFP is dead now. Now, in coalition with the DA, Action SA, uh, the new kid in the block that everybody is speculating about, um, the ACDP, the, the African Christian Democratic Party, and two or three other smaller parties, they may even have the capacity to form a coalition government in the KwaZulu-Natal uh, province, that's that's how significant um, some of these changes are for next year.
0: That's all incredible. Um, what about the big factor about the stay away vote? Because it seems that I don't know if the multi-party charter um, inspires ANC members. You probably have a better indication of that. And um, would we would. People rather stay away than not vote for the ANC that the gogo has been voting for? Yeah,
1: you know, two things. Two things. Are, it's, a, it's a very important question. Two things are, are, in my view, are regarded as game changers towards next year. The one is voting behavior. Um, in South Africa, we have seen from 1994 onwards that if you grew up in an ANC family or in an ANC environment, And it is very difficult to move out of that environment. And in an election, even if the ANC is not fulfilling its promises, it's very difficult to vote for another party. So what we have seen people doing is to stay away from the polls. It's even more than that. If you look at the statistics, and this is a a worrying factor for the IEC and for political parties, we have approximately in round figures about 45 million South Africans that can vote. In other words, South Africans over the age of 18, out of a population of approximately 60 million. As a matter of fact, the census um, will be made available tomorrow, um, and then we will probably know how many people were in South Africa a year ago. But be it as (laughs) it may, of that 46 million that is eligible to vote, only 26 million have actually registered to participate in an election. In other there's approximately 20 million of Africans over the age of 18 that does not participate in the elections at all. Of that 26 million in the 19, 2019 election, um, only about 17 million participated in the election. So if you want to calculate backwards, you can say that more people, ignored the election or decided not to participate in the election at all than those that actually participated in the election. That's a healthy situation and it impacts in the political situation in the following way. When you have a system like South Africa, if you have a high voter turnout, like above 50%, um it favors the parties in the middle. So high voter turnout means that the ANC and the DA and those guys, they get more people to the polls. If you've got a low voter turnout, it favors the parties on the edges of the political spectrum because they are the most mobilized and the the most willingness to go to the polls and vote. So it's not only uh, whether people participate in the election but also voter turnout that, um, that, that does a lot. Now, let's get back to the EFF the radical part if you look at the voting um, population and you look at who has registered and who not the EFF is regarded as a political party that is strong among the youth especially people under the age of 30 well, if you look at The registered population and you look at the population graph, South Africa looks like a typical emerging nation with a very, very broad base, and then like a pyramid, it goes up. Few people that's very old, a lot of people that's young. That the registration profile is an upside down pyramid. The the older you are, the more you're prone to register. The younger you are, the less you are, you are um, prone to register. In other words, the EFF's ceiling in terms of its support has to do with voting behavior and who decides to participate and who not. The last, I said there are two very important game changes. The first one is voting behavior. The second one is urbanization. Um, South Africa is now approaching 70% urbanization. In other words, about 30% of South Africans are living in the rural areas, and about 70% are living in big cities and towns. Now, the politics of, of urban centers, the politics of urbanization, is vastly different from the politics of the deep rural areas of South Africa. In the deep, deep rural areas of Africa, people are not aware of a thing like shed where the power goes off for an hour or two on a daily basis, or maybe three or four times a day. Um, in the urban centers, they're acutely aware, because everything is run on electricity. Um, it's also the whole question of cost of living. The, the war in the Ukraine had a huge impact on us, Getting out of COVID, and that caused especially um, primary, um, primary um, things in in the rural area like fuel, or um, whether it's candles or whether it's oil for cooking, those kind of things became very scarce and is still highly priced. So that is what the rural areas experienced, but in in the urban area. It's load-shedding as well as a total lack of service delivery because our local governments are busy failing. And it's not all of them. We've got pockets of extremely well-organized local governments, some of them, the biggest portion, of course, in the Western Cape, which means uh, they are managing what they've got because their budgets are very similar, the rules are very similar, but the... Collapse of metros in the north, as well as local governments, will have a political impact. And I may just mention that this election will be in 2024 May, we even take uh, somewhere in May next year. But within a, within two years from that election, we will have a local government election where these issues that I just discussed will be even more acutely uh, part of the political um, issue. And within a year of that, it will be the end of Cyril Ramaphosa's second term as leader of the ANC in 2027. So following this election, there will be two or three very important events that will determine the direction in which Africa is going.
0: So if you have to summarize and take a guess, and I know it would change and it's very fluid in in the next five to six months, what kind of outcome do you predict for the elections in 2024 on national and on provincial level?
1: Yeah, I think it is difficult um, at this stage, but with the information we've got at the moment, and I have been privileged that I participated in every election since 1988, actually 1987. And then we had a quick election, and then from 1994, all elections as an analyst. I would say that the ANC will get very close to 50%, despite the survey research, because there's the value of incumbency, and that is what the ANC has. It is the government. It can give ground it can provide this, it can do this and that. So I think the ANC will be very close to 50%. It will need maybe one or two smaller parties at the national level to form a government. The um, multi-party manifest or the multi-party charter with the leadership of the DA and others, I think they will get um, deep into the 30s, but not significant enough to form a government. Um, the EFS, they will op- they will operate within their ceiling, ten to fifteen percent. I think the fifteen percent is a stretch target. I think more towards ten percent, and then um, several smaller parties will will get in. What we do not know is what the impact of the independents that may participate in next year's election, what they will get, because for them to participate, it's a very very tough. Um, entry level, the mm. amount of signatures you need, the amount of money, and so on and so on. So, it's an uncertainty, but I don't think they will change anything. So, in my view, the ANC will form a government again, um, the opposition parties will have uh, coalesced into a much stronger group um, forming a competitive election. Now, the the situation at national level would mean that the ANC will have a very hard time, even impossible, to pass legislation that needs a two-thirds majority or any of the decisions to change the constitution, those kind of things. So that is one of the implications. If we go down to the provincial level, sure. I think the Western Cape is now safely in DA hands. Um I don't think the ANC has the ability to win it back. What the ANC may lose may be how Teng which is uh, where uh, Johannesburg, Victoria, and the whole industrial hub of South Africa sits, and it may also lose KwaZulu-Natal to a coalition government, which means that the ANC is national government, but they sit in a town or a city that is managed by the opposition, Victoria. Parliament sits in Cape Town managed by the opposition, um, Durban, which is our biggest export harbor, sits in a province in the hands of the opposition and the of course, the So it is a very uncomfortable situation for the ANC. And I think they can clearly see that uh, scenario emerging uh, with the information that we currently have.
0: Very interesting. And it limits their ability to give patronage.
1: Yeah, well, that, that, that is the big thing. And that is the value of a competitive election. Is is to limit patronage and to um, to have a better control over what we term state capture, which is uh, in any other country we would call it institutional corruption, corruption of a grand scale, that will also be limited.
0: So, um, just um, what do you think? Might there be any surprises? From somebody like Rising Zanzi, or from Action SA or from whoever?
1: I, I, I can think of three surprises. Um, I will be surprised if the EFF um, scores beyond 12%. So if they go into the, into the higher team, that will surprise. And um, I will be surprised by what Action SA is doing. All we have about them are their performance in local government elections. The thinking currently is that they can get between 3 and 4% of the popular vote, but remember the vote that they will get is probably eroded away from the DA. So if Action SA goes up, the DA numbers come down, and they may even approach 5% uh, because they've got a very um, strong leader, Uh, a leader with a a very strong political image and a lot of charisma. In politics, charisma is a major attribute um, if you have that. And I will also be surprised if uh, Rais M'Zanzi uh, by Mr. Zibi and if Bussi Maimane actually make the 1% or the 2% parties um, because there's a lot of these um, let's call it personality-driven groups that are also um, operating. I, I just don't think they've got the staying power and the money to to go through because in South Africa you need a lot of money to sustain an election, and it's only the big ones that do have that kind of um, financial kitty. Lately, the ANC has succeeded in getting their financial Difficulties sorted out in a better way. It was a year or so ago. The ANC was all but bankrupt, but it seems to me, with the help of some interesting donors, <laughs> some of them with strong links to to Russia, um, and the ANC is doing quite well.
0: Well, we'll definitely check in with you because it's going to be a very interesting election campaign. Thank you so much, Professor Theo Fanta.
1: Thanks, Linda.